you bow your heads in prayer? Lord, I thank you for the beauty of our choral offering that we would rather have anything, rather have Jesus more than anything in this world. Lord, I know in my heart of hearts, I can't, I can't honestly say that's true. I'm not there yet. I know many of us are not there yet. But by your word, by your spirit, would you give us a hunger to move more in that direction? To desire you, the riches of your goodness and grace above all things. And Lord, would you overcome today the the sin of my heart and by your spirit, allow yourself alone to be honored and glorified. We pray it in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. And now out of reverence for the word of God, those of you who are physically able, if you would please stand for the reading. And I will say, the reading is Luke 19, 1 to 10. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And for any of you who have been in church for more than 10 minutes, you probably think you already know the story. And so whenever we come to a really familiar passage... I would just ask that right now in your, in your mind and in your heart, you try to read this with fresh eyes. Read it and hear it and see it like you've never seen it before. Luke 19, one to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. This is the word of the Lord for you today. And I pray that it might challenge us as Jesus called, that we might seek and save that which was lost as we understand the better riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as many of you know, I think you do, uh, every January I host a group of about 30 pastors uh, from all over the country, and we meet for about three days to uh, just learn from each other, to build friendships, to support each other, to perhaps play a little golf, do a few of those things. But I think if you talk to any of us, the, the part that 
really means the most to us is when we share with each other our personal stories, what's going on in our lives, things that have happened. And sometimes those are serious, and sometimes those are what I would call memorable. And uh, this past January, one of my colleagues shared a story about when he was in college. And I will not name who this was, but he just fell in love with this girl that he met in his fresh, in a freshman year class. First class he goes into, he sees this girl, and she is the most beautiful girl he's ever seen in her life. He's just mesmerized by her. But he's so intimidated that he can't work up the courage to go talk to her. And so he decides that uh, maybe he'll make it a little easier. So after class, he decided he would follow her to kind of learn her patterns, where she would go when she'd go to the cafeteria. And today he would be arrested for stalking, but that's a whole other uh, scenario. But then... He would kind of learn where she was so that then when class was over, he would run ahead of knowing where she would walk and he would sit down casually on a bench, hoping that she would see him and go, oh, you're, you're in my literature class and say hello. And, but she never, she would just walk past him. And so that didn't work. So he confesses his lovesick heart um, to one of his friends. And he says, I just, I'm so shy, I can't talk to her. And he goes, hey, I tell you what I'll do. I'll meet you after class. We'll kind of go to where we think she's gonna be. And then when she walks by, I'll introduce myself. I'll start the conversation, get it rolling. And then you just come up and take it from there. And he was like, great, that would be so helpful. So his friend meets him after class. The girl leaves class. They're gonna follow her to where she's gonna go. And then they run ahead. But it was odd by the time they got there, she was already there and she was sitting on a park bench which also kind of took them by surprise. Usually she was walking, but she's sitting down. So they're, they're not sure what to do. So they just, they just watch her. And as she's sitting on the park bench, she proceeds to kick off her flip-flops. She takes one of her feet in her hands and proceeds to put said foot in her mouth, whereupon she began chewing her toenails. My friend is aghast. He is horrified. He has to look away. But he notices as he's looking away, his friend is not. His friend is still looking at the woman chewing her toenails and he has a kind of an awestruck look on his face. And then he says, wow, she is really limber. So how does something like that happen? Where two people see the exact same thing happening and yet they react in a totally different way. The answer is they were both understanding life from the story that they had been told. My friend grew up in a house where chewing your toenails was not socially acceptable, right? But his friend for all we know, grew up in a home of physical therapists and athletic trainers who valued flexibility, right? So they were just looking at life through two different lenses, through two different stories. And people, you and I are doing this all the time. Every single human being has to decide what is the story or the narrative that I tell myself, that I live out of, that allows me to explain and understand the life that I live, the things that I see happening to me, including the presence of suffering and evil. 
that I have to come up with a story or a narrative that either denies those two things or removes it in such a way that I can be happy. And that's what we said last week is the essence of expressive individualism. It's the dominant ideology of our day that says the highest and best use of my time is to make me happy. So I've got to tell myself a story that's not going to be about suffering and evil, but it's going to be about something good, something that makes me happy. But the problem is expressive individualism isn't working because what we're seeing is even though we're trying to live that way, and our highest and best use of our time is to make ourselves happy. We're, the statistics, the data says we're less happy, we're more depressed, we're more anxious, and we're more medicated than we've ever been. And we don't understand why. This is why, the mo- I love this, the most popular class at the Harvard Business School right now is a class called Leadership and Happiness. It has doubled in enrollment every year for four years. They can't find a room big enough to hold all the people who wanna take the class, even though the class only lasts seven weeks and is worth half a credit. Everybody wants to take it, why? Harvard leaders say because so many of their students are seeing their graduates move into the business world, become successful, sometimes mega successful, and then all of a sudden become disillusioned wash out of their chosen career and engage in self-destructive behaviors. In the mind of the student, they've achieved what they thought would make them happy and it doesn't work. And so Harvard leaders say this, the course, Leadership and Happiness, has taken on new urgency for employees and managers as workers leave jobs at record rates and rethink their goals, even as companies scramble to boost morale, reduce turnover, and experiment with new ways of working. So they're they're trying to make themselves happy by pursuing what by every argument we could hear today is the good life. I mean, what we think is gonna make us happy is achieving the good life, however you choose to define that. But that's what happiness is, is living the good life. And Jason Chatraw, who wrote the book, Telling a Better Story, defines the good life this way. So we wanna be happy. What's gonna make me happy is if I can have the good life. That's not the moral life, like good behavior, but it's good in the sense of, it's the pursuit of a feeling, which is won by the accumulation of all the things that you would find if you were to weld together ideal versions of a job resume, a dating profile, and a Christmas list. By achieving success, wealth, power, and the right body type, we've allowed a modern combination of meritocracy and consumerism to cast an imaginative and alluring vision of happily ever after. And so I hope you see the progression. Expressive individualism says, the highest and best use of my time is to do what is necessary to make me happy. And what's, makes me, what's going to make me happy is if I can achieve the good life. And in order to achieve the good life, everything that's on my Christmas list requires what? Money, riches. You wanna have that extra home? You wanna drive the fancy car? You wanna live in a better neighborhood? You wanna have all the right fattish things? All that requires money. And we live under the illusion that if I could just achieve that thing, the cultural story says the riches of the good life is gonna make me happy. And people, trust me, we all struggle with that. I do. I'm a Christian pastor and I am 100% 
committed to generosity. And yeah, I promise you, there are still days where I feel like, hands down, like if I could, I would be happier if I just could have a set of new irons. I would be, I'd be a better person. I would. If I could have a house in Colorado to go to in the summertime, I would be happier, right? We, we all struggle with that. And, and yet, we also see the data and the statistics that tell us, well, that's not actually happening. It's not working in the way that we think it will. The Wall Street Journal also reveals that now almost 40% of people in this country have no religious affiliation whatsoever. And millions of people between two and three have washed out of the Christian church in the last decade. So that's the culture in which we live as Christian people. We live in the midst of a culture that is living according to a story, the story that the riches of the good life, that individualism needs happiness, happiness is available through the good life, and the good life costs money. That's the narrative that they're living by, and yet they're finding it wanting. And so how do we, as Christian people, go about the task of helping them understand why the riches of the gospel are gonna be better riches than the riches of the good life? And that's what gets us to Luke chapter 19, verses one to 10 this morning, and the very familiar story of Zacchaeus. And of course, the first thing we know about Zacchaeus is he was short, right? So we'll come back to that in a minute. But he was also the chief tax collector in Jericho, which meant he was hated by all the other Jews because he got wealthy by overcharging his brethren the tax that was owed to Rome. So he would pay what they owed Rome, and then he overcharged them and kept that for himself, and that's how he made his money. So he was not liked. He was, in fact, reviled. Now, at this time, Jesus is also at the very end of his ministry. It says he was going through Jericho. Well, where is he on his way to? He was on his way to Jerusalem, and that's the beginning of Holy Week. That's moving to the cross. So Jesus is almost done. So everybody knows who he is. Everybody knows about the miracles. Everybody knows about the teaching. So you either loved him or hated him. Right, a lot of people loved him. The religious leaders hated him. So as he comes into Jericho, big crowd. I mean, it's a bunch of people deep on both sides of the road. Here comes Jesus and Zacchaeus is trying to get to a place to see him. And he can't see him, not just because he's short, but because people hated him. So they're not gonna let him to the front of the crowd. So he's got to climb a tree. And then Luke is very clear to tell us what's the story that Zacchaeus is living out of, Luke says, and Zacchaeus was wealthy. So at great cost to himself, the cost of personal relationships, social belonging, community, Zacchaeus had decided that for him, the good life was to be wealthy and to have the corresponding power that comes with wealth. That was the narrative that Zacchaeus was living out of until he has this life-changing conversation with Jesus Christ. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. We're gonna talk. I'm coming to your house. Can you imagine? Big crowd and Jesus looks up and goes, hey, you, yeah, in the tree. I'm coming to your place, right? So they go and they talk. So what did we learn? There's kind of one primary point and then underneath it, there are gonna be four others. So everyone just buckle up. The main point is this, that the riches of the good life 
will always be inferior to the riches of the gospel story because the riches of the good life can never explain the inevitable suffering and evil and your eventual death, the things that are gonna happen to you in this life. There's no answer for that in the riches of the good life. Look at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had, by every argument, the good life that he wanted. He was wealthy, which meant, I'm, I'm, we assume, he lived in a very nice house. He ate the best food. He had access to the, the servants that he wanted in life. And yet, why would Zacchaeus subject himself to the public degradation and humiliation, the rejection that he surely must have felt by putting himself in the middle of a big crowd that he knew hated him just so he could see Jesus. Why would he subject himself to all of that? Answer, because the good life wasn't working. Because Zacchaeus had finally gotten to a point where he couldn't understand and explain the pain of his, of his social isolation that he didn't belong, that he had no community. He was probably even looking at his age into the larger problems that existed in Rome. And what about the poverty that he saw all around him? There were no answers for any of it. And so he went to see Jesus. Jason Chattrall writes, in this world, pain and suffering can't be completely escaped. Our most prized achievements will be undermined. We will fail in our most worthy endeavors. We will watch our loved ones die and we will inevitably lose our own health. Then one day we will die. If our joy is contingent upon circumstances, we will be fragile, anxious, or on the brink of despair because we know we cannot actually escape it. The riches of the good life has no answer to the inevitable issues and problems and suffering and our inevitable demise. If you don't believe Chatra's words, maybe you'll take the words of Steve Jobs, who at 56, as he was dying of pancreatic cancer, wrote this. I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life is the epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, wealth is only a fact of life I am accustomed to. At this moment, lying on the sickbed and recalling my whole life, I realized that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of impending death. People, I don't know how to say it any more clearly than that, but the riches of the good life are empty riches. They're hollow riches. They're meaningless riches. They cannot do for you what you think they will. And then we see juxtaposed with that a conversation that Jesus has with Zacchaeus. And you know, what's interesting about this is we're not privy to the conversation. We don't get any detail. When they go in the house and eat, we don't know what they said, but we do know how Luke sets it up. Luke sets it up between one group of people who are living according to the, the riches of the good life and believing that life kind of owes them. And what are they doing? They're muttering. The word mutter is one of my favorite words in the New Testament because it's a word that sounds like what it means, right? It's one of those words. I don't, there's actually a word that means that, but I didn't really look that up. But muttering is when people, you just get to a place in life where you're living according to the riches of the good life. You don't have any of them. So you get cynical, you complain. Something's always wrong. God's always let you down. And so you're just constantly mutter, 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 mutter. 
Right? And so, oh, Jesus and Zacchaeus go to dinner and what does everybody do? Oh, modern, modern, modern. Of course he's eating with somebody. Modern, modern, modern. You're just unhappy, right? Life's not giving you what you think it ought to give you. And then, well, before I move on, are any of you all mutterers? I have to confess I've muttered a few times. Muttering, it's joyless. But then he sets that in contrast to Zacchaeus who comes back out and in verse eight, he stands up and it's, it's so completely different. It ain't muttering, it's not joyless, it's joyful. Zacchaeus says, look, Lord. I mean, he's exuberant. He can hardly contain himself. Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And in Zacchaeus's response, there are four things. So overall, big main point, the riches of the good life are always going to be insufficient. They'll never be as good as the riches of the gospel because they can't answer the inevitable questions. But Zacchaeus's response shows us, here's four reasons why the riches of the gospel are better. Number one, you get the riches of relationship with Jesus. You get the riches of a relationship with the son of God and the savior of the world. To this point, Zacchaeus has been lonely and broken and isolated. And you know what? Zacchaeus absolutely knew who he was. Zacchaeus knew he was a liar and he was a cheat and he was a thief and he'd taken a bunch of money from a lot of people and that money didn't belong to him and he did it anyway. And yet Jesus comes along and knowing all of that, Jesus still chooses him. Jesus chooses a broken liar, thief and a cheat and he says, I'm coming to your house. And people, the beauty of the gospel is that God knows everything there is to know about us and he chooses to love us nonetheless and to make us his own and to give his life for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's the riches of the gospel story. You get the riches of forgiveness. You get the riches of grace. You get the riches of a purposeful, meaningful life. That's part of the building of the kingdom of God. You get the expanse and the promise of the riches of heaven. Friends, two or three months ago, I had the privilege of talking to Lillian Rose. Lillian Rose used to come to the early service and she sat right there on the eighth row behind where Becky and George are sitting. And Lillian Rose was in hospice care in Lakeland, Florida, about two days away from her death. And Lillian Rose never had really much of anything by her own admission. She was not wealthy. She was not privileged. She had very little. And yet when I talked to her on the phone, she said, David, I know that I'm at the end. And she said, I can't wait to be in the presence of Jesus. I'm at peace. I'm comfortable. I know what awaits me and I am ready to see Jesus. And I thought, here is this woman and I'm working on this sermon and I think she's coming to the inevitable end, her demise. And what is she filled with? The riches of a relationship with Jesus. 
So she faced it not with joyless despair, but she faced it with great anticipation. Why? Because of the riches of Christ. They'll never compare the riches of Christ to the empty riches of the good life. Then secondly, we understand the riches of the gospel are better riches than the riches of the good life because living a life of generosity actually allows us to live out of our true identity. So what happens to Zacchaeus? He has this transforming moment where he comes out of the conversation and he says, Lord, I'm gonna give away half my money. Look, he's so excited. How many of you would just be almost unable to contain yourself if you were about to announce you were giving away half your net worth? You'd be really excited about that? No. But here's Zacchaeus going, I'm gonna give half of it away. Up until this point, Zacchaeus, I think, has probably led a joyless existence. But he discovers something about himself. And here it is. It's pretty simple in the concept. It's tough in the application. The reality is James 1, 5, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God in his nature is a generous God. He's a self-giving God. Therefore, we who are created in his image are intended to live the same way. You've been hardwired to give yourself away. You've been hardwired to be generous. And when you are, you get Zacchaeus, you get joy, you get understanding. Why? Because you're living out of your true identity. But as long as you decide it's your money, as long as you live out of the narrative that you're pursuing the good life and that requires your riches, you'll never know that joy. You'll always be locked up and unable to experience the life that God actually wants you to have. People, generosity and true faithful giving into kingdom endeavors is one what unlocks the key that lets you live out of your true identity. You actually become the person that you're hardwired to be. It's kind of like when you were gifted to do some particular thing in life. Let's say you were just gifted, you're, you're Jeremy. You're gifted to play the piano. He's back there now, right? You're gonna, you're gonna be musical. And what if, what if right up until now, he'd never touched a key. And then all of a sudden he sits down and he gets to play. I mean, that's gonna light him up. It's the same with generosity in our lives. We never do it. We're, we don't know what we're missing, but man, when we sit down and live into the gift of how God's made us, it changes us just like it changes Zacchaeus. Then the third thing related is that he gets generous, but did you notice the phrase? It says, I'm gonna give, give away half my possessions, where? To the poor. So what we learn, the riches of the gospel are better riches because they turn us away from being self-absorbed inward creatures to outwardly facing kingdom disciples who recognize the call to be about needs beyond ourselves. It's the antidote to expressive individualism. It's the call to service. It's the call to be aware there are the poor among us. And part of what I'm called to do is to take care of them. It delivers us from our unending nature of trying to serve self and gets us engaged in the kingdom things that God wants me to do. It's why a bunch of guys got up at 
4.30 in the morning and drove to Fort Myers and sat around mucking in sewage and all the other things they did. Why? Because it got them out of their cells and it helped them take part in a larger endeavor. That's again, part of who we are as generous people. Relationship with Christ leads to a generous life that is filled with service. And the last thing is what? It's living a life that is just. Living a life that is just. Zacchaeus says, not only am I gonna give away half my possessions, but he says, I'm gonna repay four times what I took. All right, so the the legal standard was 20%. He's gonna give back four times. So what Zacchaeus is saying is, I'm gonna right the wrongs of my life. I'm gonna do the right thing. And we talked about this last week. Expressive individualism says, I'm the one who decides what's right and wrong. I'm gonna live according to my standard. And what the gospel tells us last week is, no, there's only one standard of truth and that's Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So there is a truth, there is a right, there is a wrong, and we're called to be obedient to it. And when you live that way, there's joy in that. There is an inward satisfaction when we know what's right and we actually are obedient and we do what's right, even when it may not be easy. Why? Because it honors God. And part of Zacchaeus' joy is because he was finally doing the right thing because he was living the right way. And people, you know what? I, I think we're, we're pretty smart people. I think when we know when we're living the wrong way, I think we're pretty aware of that. And when we actually reach a place of transformation in the way Zacchaeus did, and we say, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna start doing the right thing. I think there's real satisfaction and joy in it. I'm, I'm over time. I'm gonna tell you one more story. I'm walking down Rosalind over here in August, heat of the summer, it's blazing hot, and there's a homeless guy on the street, and he's literally laying down on the concrete, and he looks horrible. And there are, and the sun's just beating down on him, and there are two women who walk by him, and literally, he lifts a hand, and he goes, water, water. He didn't ask for drugs, he didn't ask for money. And these two women looked down at him like he was the worst human being alive. And one of them says, we don't have any, and kept going. And again, in in my heart, was I I late? Yeah. Did I have a place to go? Yeah. But in my heart, I thought, what's the right thing? And I'm like, I can't solve homelessness. I can't solve the God's problem, but I can right this wrong. And I went into the dollar store and I bought him two big things, a of water, cost me five bucks, and I took him out, and you'd have thought I handed him two gold bricks. He was so grateful, why? Because I, I just did the right thing, and I tell you, I walked away. It wasn't the greatest thing ever in the history of humanity, but I felt good, because I had an opportunity to right a wrong, and you and I have those opportunities every day, and when we live that way, it gives us joy. So. One of my favorite lines from any movie ever made, the end of It's a Wonderful Life, you know the line. George Bailey has served everybody else, thinks his life is a failure. And yet at the end, he gets in trouble. Everybody comes pouring cash on his table and brother Harry bursts in, picks up a cup of punch and he raises a toast and he says to my brother George, the richest man in town. People, our standard for wealth 
if not the riches of the good life. Our standard for riches is the riches of the gospel of Jesus that allows us the riches of relationship with him, the riches of a life poured out in generosity and service and justice that then becomes a huge question mark to the people at the Harvard Business School who can't seem to figure out why people who are living according to the riches of the good life are washing out and engaging in self-destructive behaviors because it doesn't last. People, I pray that we would become aware of our own riches and we would be more satisfied in them than we've ever been so that as we move out into the world, we'd be able to help people understand why the riches of the gospel are indeed better than any of the riches of this life. Let's pray together. Lord, we we get the story wrong. And when you live out of the wrong story, oftentimes it's hard to recover until someone comes and tells you how the story could be different. I pray that we'd be that kind of church that we would recognize in our own lives the riches of the gospel and that we would be satisfied in them And by our own generosity, we would create something light, something hopeful in the world in which we live so that others might ask us, why is your life different? Why so generous? Why so content? Why so satisfied? And that in that, we might have the privilege of doing the work of gospel sharing. All to your glory, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll sing together, Give Me Jesus.